Hey there, listeners. Welcome to Horror Movie Club, the show where two dudes who are not quite nerds but not quite noobs choose a horror movie each week to rate and review. I'm Brian. I'm on the phone with Ashvin. And today we are discussing The Brood from 1979, directed and written by David Cronenberg, starring Art Hindle, Oliver Reed, and Samantha Egger. And in this film, a concerned father tries to make sense of what is going on at the mysterious psychological institution where his wife is being treated as a string of murders befall those close to him. If you're new to the show, we're just going to talk general background info on this movie for the first 15 to 20 minutes. We will keep that spoiler free, but after that, we'll take a little break, play some transition music, and that music means we're headed into spoiler territory, so it's time to duck out if you haven't seen the movie. Uh, Ashwin, I'll stay away from the genre of this film, because I feel like it kind of reveals itself towards the end of the movie, so maybe we won't discuss that until later. Sounds good. But it plays out as a kind of a, a murder mystery, really, in the first hour of the movie right yeah yeah i think the setup is very akin to a, a murder mystery and then you have like your typical like isn't cronenberg most known for body horror yeah indeed which you have like some elements of that right yeah yeah exactly um and we have not talked about him i think we've only covered one movie of his yeah videodrome videodrome very early on in the show it's probably like one of we our did- first episodes we didn't do the fly on here? No, we've discussed the fly when we were just doing this for fun and not recording ourselves, but we uh, didn't, we didn't do it on the podcast. Oh, okay, interesting. Yeah. But yeah, as you said, he's considered kind of the father of body horror, which uh, is a subgenre that explores bodily transformation, mutation, disease, infection, and often explores the relationship between the psychological and the physical as well. Some of the classics include Scanners from 1981, which kind of gave society the go-to video clip for someone's head exploding. Videodrome from 1983, The Fly from 1986, 2005's A History of Violence, among many others. I found an old article that also called Cronenberg Canada's Baron of Blood. Oh boy, wow. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's a great title <laughs> yeah and I also learned he uh, is remaking an early film of his called Crimes of the Future uh, with Viggo Mortensen and Kristen Stewart wow he's directing it and Scott S- Speedman as well who I should not oh should not go unnamed yeah he's yeah. directing it it's a, I think he made it in 1970 I've never seen it it looks like maybe it's a low budget thing that he directed and edited and produced himself and everything um so maybe he he's taking another stab at it with a bigger production. I don't know too much about it, but it's already. That's I'm pretty awesome. sure filming is wrapped. That's awesome. I can't believe he's still directing. He's like 78 or something, right? It's pretty old. Is he? Yeah, he's he's getting up there. Yeah, good for him. Good for him. Yeah, and uh, some of these actors, other horror fans might recognize the main guy. Frank is played by Art Hindle, who is in Invasion of the Body Snatchers, the 70s version. Uh, the antagonist Oliver Reed was the dad in Burnt Offerings and Samantha Egger who plays Nola the wife and mother in this film was in Curtains so some kind of 1970s familiar horror faces here <laughs> yeah yeah I, I didn't recognize any of them did you uh, I recognized Oliver Reed from Burnt Offerings and I knew Art Hindle's face but I didn't know what I knew him from and I'm pretty uh-huh. sure it was Invasion of the Body Snatchers okay got it Hey, um, uh, one one question for you on on body horror. Are are you a fan of that genre? 
You know, yeah, sure. I, I feel like I'm a fan of the body horror elements themselves. I feel like sometimes they're not contained in a movie that I loved. I kind of use Videodrome as a stand-in for body horror in my mind, which yeah. was a movie I liked but didn't love. Um, but I think body horror as a, I don't know, a narrative element, I guess, or an aspect of a film, I, I do enjoy that. I, I thought The Fly was great. Yeah, I agree. I feel like uh, when it's like within the context of a really good story, it can be good, but if it your whole story is based on body horror uh which i know i, I thought the fly was but i uh i forget what the storyline around the fly was um so i'd probably have to go back and refresh my mind on that one yeah I, we should do that one sometimes i'd like to or sometime i'd like to refresh my memory on that too but i think it was kind of a love story and just a very real journey of what this guy was going through as his body was transforming kind of contrasted with his scientific curiosity from what i remember but it's it's been yeah. a while okay yeah, but yeah, I'm with you. If if the story is good, that's I, honestly, man, I'm like that with almost any horror subgenre. If the <laughs> story is good, then I, I like it. Yeah, yeah. I'm not blanket against any subgenre. Yeah, I, I guess uh, to me that there is a fine line, like how much because uh, if, if if like you show a lot of uh, body horror, then I I think I would get turned off and like it, it feels like it's kind of like dominating the movie. But if it's more subtle or like just like a limited a few scenes, I feel like I'm more likely to. To appreciate it then versus uh yeah uh, overexposure to it okay yeah that makes sense um budget for this movie was about 1.5 million canadian dollars the box office numbers are a bit vague but at least 5 million worldwide um, did you you didn't have to do the math on the 1.5 since it was canadian did i you? didn't i didn't do the math on that oh, okay <laughs> I didn't do the currency conversion or the, uh, or the inflation the adjustment. Yeah, <laughs> Brian, man, you're dropping the. <laughs> Sorry, it's man. Like you, dropping usually the all math over this I know. time value of money equations. <laughs> <laughs> um, the Rotten Tomatoes critic score is 84 percent, and 68 percent of users like it. Critics at the time seemed to like it less than modern con- critics uh, going back and and. Re- reflecting on this as a cult classic um roger ebert at the time called it a bore disgusting in ways that are not entertaining and reprehensible trash i'm surprised in 1979 uh that it got those kind of reviews um i saw some man i really don't feel like i mean this has some gross moments but disgust reprehensible trash like i'm pretty surprised by that yeah yeah me too i think another reviewer like said it was just like a cash grab which it's like you watch this today. It's it, this doesn't look like a cash like a blockbuster or, some, or something where it's just out to make money or something. Exactly. This is the farthest thing from a cash grab I can imagine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Seventies were a crazy time. I guess so, man. Yeah. Um, Storyberg story was conceived by Cronenberg. <laughs> Storyberg was conceived by Cronenberg after his divorce Berg and custody battle for his daughter, uh, which. We'll talk about that in the review, but I didn't realize until reading up on this afterwards how much divorce is kind of a theme embedded throughout the movie. Yeah, I know. I feel like it's 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 a little more pushed back, but that, that's interesting that that was the, the 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 idea behind the film. Yeah, I I think he got like divorced like in 1979 or like a year or two within when this movie was released. So yeah, I mean, sure it, it seems fresh. like it was very fresh, right? Yeah. Um. 
This was the film composing debut of Howard Shore, who would go on to win three Academy Awards for the Lord of the Rings trilogy, and he'd also go on to score all of one but Cronenberg's films from here on out. Mm-hmm. And I do not know the one film, and I feel like an idiot. <laughs> what of Cronenberg have you seen? Have you just seen Videodrome, The Fly, in this? Yeah, yeah. This is only my third Cronenberg. How about you? Okay. Uh, I haven't seen many, but I, in addition to those, I've seen Rabid, which I didn't really care for. It was fine, even though I really loved the remake mm-hmm. by uh, the Saska sisters. Is that their name? Um, oh, and then A History of Violence with Viggo Morgensen, uh, Mortensen. You should watch that, man. Really? Is that a horror film? It's not. It's kind of like a drama slash crime slash action movie. Oh, okay. It's really odd and has a strange tone, but I think you'd like it. Okay, cool. I'll check that out. It's kind of wild. Yeah, you should. Haven't we seen the movie directed by his son? Yeah, Brandon Cronenberg directed Possessor from last year. Oh, wow. Yeah, that was a great one. Also cool. a similar blending of uh, psychological and body horror. I was trying to yeah. like keep it under wraps for some reason that this is body horror, but we'll just be up front and say that... Uh, oh. The Brood is body horror. <laughs> yeah, sure, sure. And, and I feel like with the fly in Videodrome, heavy sci-fi, even like uh, Possessor, like I, I think that was also, that his son directed pretty sci-fi. Um, so I feel like that's another common uh, one for Cronenberg's. Yeah, sure. Yeah, they do kind of have sci-fi elements to them. Yeah, indeed. Mm-hmm. Uh, anything else? Any other background on this movie? I feel like I'm kind of short on background info, but how about you? No, yeah, there, there wasn't much out there. I was, I was surprised for, like, uh, a Cronenberg film and one that uh, I think, like, to your point, is, like, relatively well-regarded today. I, thought, I think it was, like, number 88 on some top 100 list. So uh, I think, like, through the years or decades, it's been appreciated more. Um, and, it, like, it makes some top lists now, right? I agree. I think it, the affection for it has increased over the years. But, yeah, it's not... Um Often in Cronenberg discussions, you hear about Videodrome, Scanners, and The Fly. The Brute's brought up sometimes, but it kind of takes a backseat to some of the other titles sometimes. That's my impression, at least. But I would like to watch more. We definitely should cover at least Scanners in the next year. And our goal is to cover more of the big-name directors that we've neglected over the three years we've been on the air. Right. Yeah, Cronenberg, uh, I I, I like his uh, style, and uh, he's Canadian, right? He is, yeah. The Canadian yeah. Baron of Blood, of course. Oh, yeah, right, right. That's, <laughs> yeah, awesome. All right, man, well, if you don't have anything else, should I hit the Ohio Connection? Yeah, let's hear it. Okay. Our Ohio Connection, as always, is from our friend Alex, who owns the Jukebox Bar and Restaurant in Cleveland, Ohio. If you live in the area, swing by there for some delicious beer and food. And Alex says, The Brood is a psychological body horror film written and directed by David Cronenberg and starring Oliver Reed, Samantha Egger, and Art Hindle. Reed was a seasoned veteran when he was cast to play Dr. Hal Raglan. He had enjoyed formidable success as a leading man in films throughout the late 60s and early 70s, with his big break being in Oliver, which won Best Picture at the Academy Awards in 1968. He went on to star in two The Three Musketeers films, Women in Love, and The Who's rock opera Tommy. It is long rumored that producers had considered Reed to be the next James Bond after retiring Sean Connery's portrayal. Oh. 
right? Yeah. I can <laughs> you, see that. You, did you need to take a moment to imagine that? Yeah, yeah. But yeah, I can totally see it. Can I can kind of see it, but kind of not. Oh, uh, I, I guess he does seem more like a villain, maybe. Like a, yeah. a Bond villain. Yeah, you know, he he was cast better for this movie than he was Burnt Offerings because he was like the dad and kind of the main character and something just seemed off about him, but like oh, unintentionally yeah. so. Yeah, yeah. Um, but Alex goes on to say the last film he ever made was Ridley Scott's Gladiator in 2000, for which he received a posthumous BAFTA award for best actor in a supporting role. He lost to Benicio Del Toro for his role in Steven Soderbergh's Traffic. Michael Douglas co-starred in Traffic as a conservative judge from Cincinnati, Ohio. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> he had to really go a long way to get there. Yeah, yeah, damn. Uh, yeah, Bravo, I never, never saw Alex. Traffic, did you? Uh, yeah, I did. Oh, okay. I can't remember right. it very much. I saw it in high school. Yeah, it sounds really familiar, but I, I can't remember seeing yeah, it. Yeah, I think it had Julia Stiles in it as well. Hmm. Kind of okay. like a dark crime movie. Okay. Um, okay, man, well, should we start spoiling stuff, walk through the plot, and review the movie? Let's do it. Okay. Uh, before we do, though, buddy, I hear some sort of commotion upstairs in the kitchen. Do you mind if I put this on hold while I go check it out? Oh, sure. All right, I'll be right back. All right. Hey, man, I'm back. Hey, everything okay up there? Yeah, I think so. It was just my wife roughhousing with my four-year-old, so I just let it be and came back down. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Although, now that I think about it, he's not usually awake at this time of night. Oh, huh. That's and I'm not sure why he was wearing his snowsuit. <laughs> oh, man, is it? I hope it's snowing outside, is it? It's not. It's actually surprisingly warm, but it's fine. <laughs> Whatever. I'm sure there was sure just something. Yeah, something. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, okay, man. Well, the movie opens with a very strange interaction between two men on a stage that at first appears to be a play. At least it did to me. One yeah, character, same. yeah, it did. Mm-hmm. One character is uh, playing the role of a dad telling his son that he's weak and that they should have named him Michelle instead of Mike. Then the character playing the son tells his dad something to the effect of, this is what you do to me on the inside, and the character is suddenly covered in sores. We see reactions from a man sitting and watching in the crowd. This man turns out to be Frank, who will be our main character. And after the play is over, Frank goes upstairs to what seems like a hotel room or something and gets his daughter and takes her home. We later see buses outside that say, Institute for the Psych- for Psychoplasmics. Uh, the, so the, the lack of exposition in this opening scene leave you to wonder what was going on? Like, what did you make of this? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, similar, I, I thought it was like they were watching a play, but then, um, yeah, I, I, I think uh, it became clear somehow, and I, I think maybe it was that, that bus sign or something, um, that, like, yeah, this guy's running an institute here. And the performances, like, you could tell, like, uh, the guy was, like, pretty disturbed who was on, on stage and, like, you know, seeing those welts and stuff, and that there wasn't, it didn't, like, end in, like, a, an applause 
I think that kind of gave it away that this wasn't a play. So I, I thought it was kind of cool because uh, you kind of have to like put these pieces together and figure out that, oh, yeah, this is probably some demonstration of uh, some kind of medical thing. Um, what, what did you think? Yeah, I like that. I like that they didn't come right out and tell us what was going on, but through the buses and basically later as like the first act proceeds, you can kind of figure out, okay, Dr. Raglan was, a do- he's a doctor and he's role playing as the patient's father right, to right. demonstrate his therapy to an audience of perhaps other people in the medical field or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. No, it is really cool. They don't like spell that out for you. That, that That's nice. Yeah. Um, and then the whole thing with the daughter upstairs in a room, we learn when Frank gets home, he sees that his daughter has bruises and scratches on her back. We learn that his wife, Nola, is getting therapy at this psychoplasmic place, and they were there for to have the daughter visit the mother. And he thinks his wife, Nola, did this to their daughter, Candy, during a visit at the institution, and now he's angry at Dr. Raglan for letting this happen. Um Raglan's like the head honcho of the place, and he has Nola under his care. So Frank stops, uh, he threatens to stop bringing the daughter there for visits, but legally he's obligated to do so per the terms with his wife and yada, yada, yada. Um, And Ashwin, while he's having this confrontation with Dr. Raglan, you're a man who tends to notice the clothes people are wearing. So did you (laughs) notice that this whole thing happened while Raglan was wearing a robe? Oh, <laughs> no, I missed that. Oh, That's man, all how did you miss it? Of all the clothing <laughs> observations. Yeah, he like, Frank walks into his office or whatever, and they're just having this really serious discussion, and Raglan's just in a robe the whole time. Oh, my God. I you know, Raglan's uh, acting, like, that, that actor, um, it was, it's just, like, I was so, like, absorbed by it, uh, like, the way he would, like, kind of, conf- like, he was just being so calm, but, like, intense, and uh, yeah, I, I I totally missed like what he was wearing uh, because of that. But that, that's that's kind of random. He was in a robe. Well, why, why was he in a robe? I don't know. I don't know. Oh. Um, he seems to like live there at the place too, but still a robe. I didn't get it. Okay. But yeah, he's got a very like off-putting way about him, doesn't he? Yeah, yeah. I can't, I can't tell if it's like medical, uh, and and that's why like he's kind of like like very scientific and not like very. Uh, like a uh, full, full of like emotion and stuff, but uh, there's like something very like alienation alienated about him. Yeah, he's well cast as like a mad scientist type here. Yeah, it didn't quite work in burnt offerings. Oh, okay. Uh, meanwhile, Candy, the daughter, is uh, babysitting. Oh, wait a minute, hold on. I think I missed something. Okay, so the big event that moves us from the first act to the second act happens when Frank drops Candy off at Grandma's house. Grandma's going to babysit. This is Nola's mom. Um, And the scene at Grandma's house is interspersed with shots of Nola engaging in in therapy with Dr. Raglan. And Nola's recounting memories of her mom beating her when she was a child, which is worrisome because we're also seeing uh, Candy here, Nola's daughter, with the grandma alone, and Grandma's drinking. Um, But... Grandma is telling Candy about a time when Nola was little when they spent a lot of time in the hospital because Nola kept getting these weird bumps that would appear on her body. And this interaction is interrupted when Grandma hears a noise in the kitchen. She goes to investigate, and some weird little kid-looking creature knocks over everything in her kitchen and then kills Grandma by bludgeoning her repeatedly with a meat tenderizer. And Candy goes into the kitchen and sees her dead grandmother lying there. 
but she later tells the police she doesn't remember anything, and in fact, the police find Candy napping upstairs when they arrive on the scene. Um, Ashwin, do you feel like kid actors just played it differently back then? <laughs> like like more effective or less effective? They always just seem to have like such blank expressions all the time. I don't know yeah. if it was the way they were directed or if that people just thought like, oh, the kid just has to be there. Yeah, yeah. These I, I don't know. Uh, do you do you feel like maybe kids these days overact, and we've just gotten used to that? Huh. I don't know, man. Because sometimes a kid is hard to read. Like I know my four year old sometimes when he's confused or sad is a bit blank, and she's five in this. So yeah, maybe it's realistic. And she had just gone through some trauma with her parents being separated and her mom being in a an institution. So maybe maybe that's how candy rolls. Yeah, and are you talking about like the scene where like she finds her grandmother dead and like her lack of expression? Then yeah, yeah, and almost every scene up to this point too, she's just kind of there, like yeah. very deadpan delivery. Yeah, I I kind of interpreted that as like, um, and I, I know like later like a psychologist kind of like looks at her and they're like wondering like why isn't she talking about this stuff? So uh, I I kind of just thought that was like her personality or like her kind of like burying like what she's seeing or something, but maybe it was just bad acting. <laughs> No, you you might be right. I mean, maybe that's deliberate because she is kind of a theme of the movie is penting penting things up and uh right. And uh yeah. So that may be a window into Candy's little world. Mm-hmm. Um but mm-hmm. like you said, the the psychologist who works at the police department encourages Frank to help Candy confront what happened to her grandma instead of just denying it all to herself because it may manifest itself later in negative ways. And he says he's seen five-year-olds with ulcers as bad as middle-aged businessmen. <laughs> Did that you... worry you as a middle-aged businessman? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I started feeling around in my stomach. Do you yeah. think ulcers... I feel like ulcers used to be like the go-to symbol symptom for stress, like in uh-huh. media. And maybe uh-huh. in like general colloquial conversation, just like... Oh, I'm giving myself an ulcer. Like, yeah, is yeah. that still a thing? Do people get yeah. ulcers a lot? Like, you never hear about it anymore. And We're is like, it brought on by stress? Yeah, you don't hear about them as much. Yeah, which like hearing it brought up in this movie, like, like made me scared again because like, yeah, I haven't heard of that term in a long time, and it's like, oh shit, is that something we're still supposed to be worried about? Or, uh, <laughs> like, what's what's going on? The <laughs> ulcers yeah, are just ulcers? waiting until we become complacent, and then they'll be back. <laughs> exactly, that's how they work when you least expect it. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I know. That, that, that's so funny. That was like a thing back then. Yeah, I, I'm tempted to think of uh, that one bad guy in Dumb and Dumber. Uh, what, uh, which one? The, uh, which, which bad guy? The, uh, the like main, oh, I guess he's not the main bad guy. They like feed him poison on accident at the restaurant. Oh, 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 okay. And they give him an ulcer? Yeah, well, he already has an ulcer. He like is complaining about his ulcer the whole movie. Oh, oh, okay. Okay. Never mind. It's been too long since either of us have seen that movie. Yeah, yeah. Uh, anyway, Grandma's ex-husband, who is Nola's father, and Candy's grandpa, comes into town for the funeral. Uh, he's kind of in a bad place. He's depressed that all of this has happened. He's sad that they're not a family anymore, etc. Um, and we, as the viewer, are getting to know, as we're getting to know Grandpa, we also see some more therapy sessions with Nola and Dr. Raglan. And Dr. Raglan is role-playing as her father as she recounts the beatings that her mother would give her, and she's angry at her father, asking him why he never stopped. Why didn't he ever do anything about it? He just let it happen, etc., etc. Um, 
and Grandpa tries to come see Nola, but Dr. Raglan won't let him. And Grandpa learns that Raglan hasn't even told her that her mother died, and he's really pissed at Raglan, as is Frank. And Frank, meanwhile, is kind of investigating Raglan on his own so he can get some sort of case together to either get Nola out of his care or to legally be able to stop letting Candy see Nola because he's concerned that she's going to get hurt again. Did uh, did like child protective like social services not exist back then? Like the the whole thing where he's going after Raglan uh, to get um, control or ownership of of the daughter. Um, that 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 just uh, that seemed kind of roundabout. What what did you think? Yeah, I agree. It is a bit roundabout, but who knows? It may have been a, a pretty different vibe back then. I, I'm not sure what the okay. legal landscape was like. Yeah. All right. Um. So in his investigations, Frank talks to a patient who was once in Raglan's care, and we learn that this guy has a type of cancer called lymphosarcoma, and we see some like malformations on his neck when he removes his scarf. And he tells Frank that he thinks Raglan encouraged his body to turn against him, and he's implying there may be something metaphysical happening, but he can't prove it. Meanwhile, the grandpa goes back to the old house where grandma was murdered and presumably where they all lived as a family when Nola was little. He's drunk and sad and nostalgic. He calls Frank to ask him to come over so that they can go give Wranglin what for. And we see him mourn over the chalk outline of grandma's dead body in the kitchen, which is now a crime scene. He heads upstairs to their bedroom, passes out on the bed, but is awoken by the little person who killed grandma and the creature bludgeons him to death as well with a snow globe. Um, and when he sees the creature at first, he says, Nola. And did you find that to be significant when it happened, Ashwin? Or did you not? No, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't think twice about it. It just seemed like a weird thing to say. Like, uh, what, what what do you think it meant? I, my ears kind of perked up. I I had a feeling this had something to do with Nola. I was starting to figure out what may have been happening here in this, this, uh, was encouraging to me. It was starting to prove me right that he thought this was Nola. Yeah, yeah, I, th- I think there's something to like seeing those scenes side by side, like her going off on her father, and then uh, this attack happening. Right, um, right. You start to s- okay. realize there's maybe some foreshadowing, even because she was complaining about her mother uh, earlier, right before her mother died. Yeah. Were you touched by this grandpa character the same way I was? I found him to be a really sympathetic character. Oh no, I I didn't. I mean, like, who who's this dude? I mean, like, he, the, you know, he wasn't with the mother and the grandmother anymore. Uh, now he comes back all heartbroken that, like, we used to be a family. Um, and, uh, I, I, yeah, I couldn't really, like, understand his, like, emotional connection being in that house and, like, just being drunk and, uh, you know, calling Frank and, like, disrupting his night and saying, like, you got to come over here and we got to go over there. I, I couldn't get behind this guy, but you, you felt for him? I really did, yeah. I mean, his family had fallen apart and he had moved on with his life and he came back and was just like, so sad about what they had lost and he's really mourning in the house and just kind of like too drunk to function but really i don't know i found him to be a pretty sympathetic and convincing character why would, why would he go to the house though at night like when it's like a crime scene i mean because he just had his ex-wife murdered in the house and that's where he used to live and where he raised his family yeah yeah you know he's over there I getting guess. drunk and being nostalgic yeah i, I yeah. get it I guess, yeah. It just sucked because uh, Frank was like having a dinner with uh, the teacher, and suddenly he's got to like a, a ban- like bail out on on her, right? 
You wanted some action there with the teacher. I did. I wanted to see where that was going. I think, I think that was going somewhere. <laughs> he, had, he had a real shot there. I think you're right. Yeah. Um, but Frank does head over there uh, because he's concerned Grandpa will try to drive drunk, and he leaves Candy's teacher at the house to babysit her while she's gone and Candy's asleep. Uh, while Candy's teacher is at the house, she receives a call from Nola, who's infuriated that this, this woman has answered her phone and assumes she's having an affair with Frank. Um, but Frank arrives on the scene at the old house to find Grandpa dead, and he has a brief scuttle even with the little creature, and then the creature seems to die of its own volition. <laughs> and I love that later, as Frank is talking with the police about this, and they realize the creature has that had killed Grandma has been in the house the whole time, the officer says they combed the house, but they weren't looking for something that small. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we yeah. were specifically looking for people five feet and tall. Right? <laughs> no. <laughs> it's protocol. Uh, yeah, that's good. <laughs> um, but they Wait, do it. You, oh, oh, go ahead. What do you think? Cause I, I feel like in this attack scene on the grandpa is like the first time we see like the face fully of, of like the, the creature. Uh, what would you think? Like, do you feel like it was a scary... Uh, uh, yeah, creature, or like, what would you think of like the effects on it? I didn't think it was scary. Um, perhaps even a little silly, but I just thought it was so odd and off-putting that I was, I was down with it. It kind of fit the vibe of the movie. But what did you think? Yeah, no, I, I felt like it was just kind of uh, weird and creepy, especially like the snowsuit uh, that kind of threw me for, for a loop. That's like a strange thing to wear. Right. So yeah, it was definitely an aesthetic. It, indeed, it really was a specific aesthetic. Yeah. Um, but they do an autopsy on this thing and it's got all sorts of weird body parts, some like energy fuel sack that gets depleted and kills the thing itself when that happens. Um, and significantly it has no belly button, which means it's never been born, at least not in a way that a human has been born. Um, so yeah, between this and grandpa mistaking the creature for Nola, the expatient of Raglan's telling Frank that Raglan somehow metaphysically caused his cancer, I was starting to catch on to what was happening. Um, next, we get a scene that the viewer can probably recognize by now as foreshadowing. The doctor is role-playing now as Candy's teacher in a therapy session with Nola. After this session, the doctor sees the headlines about these murders, called the dwarf murders or something like that in the papers, and he immediately orders that the main house of the institution be emptied of all its patients. Meanwhile, Frank's investigations lead him to Mike, the guy from that opening scene of the movie that I mistook for a play. Uh, he's just been kicked out of the institution with all the other patients, and he tells Frank that Raglan thinks Nola was born to prove that psychoplasmics works. Um, he tells Frank he's emptied out the entire institution except for his wife because Raglan wants to be alone with her. And of course, as foreshadowed in that therapy session uh, where Nola is pissed about Candy's teacher, one day while Candy's at school, two of these little creatures show up, escort Candy out of the room, and bludgeon her teacher to death as her little classmates look on in horror. Uh, what did you think of this scene? Uh, the, the, the one at the school? Yeah, when they murder the teacher in the school right in front of these little kids. Yeah, yeah, that, that was that was tragic, man. Now, you know, with with both uh, with all like uh, all all the action sequences here and, and the murders, there's kind of like a, a weird silliness to them because you have these grown people being attacked by like uh, you know like uh, k- kids, right? Almost, and uh, the violence like kind of doesn't look real. Like you hear them like kind of screaming and like you see blood kind of showing up, but 
the the violence is like them just getting hit like kind of by like mallets and stuff and uh it's kind of hard to buy into but conceptually pretty tragic what, what did you think I think you're on the money. Like, you kind of have to suspend some disbelief with these scenes because, yeah, it is just like a bunch of little people on a person, like, giving hits that don't look like they're that hard, but you got to believe that they are (laughs) killing. Uh, Anytime someone dies by bludgeoning, I just find it all the more gruesome, even if it's not very easy to buy into because of the way it looks. But, yeah, the situation itself... Is it's more the aftermath that's haunting? Yeah, for me. like the image of her dead, like with the pool of blood under her head. Yeah, and like all these kids kind of huddled around her, whimpering and stuff. Like, right, that's pretty yeah. messed up. That is, yep. Um. Anyway, we're moving towards the conclusion here as we learn that Candy is missing. Frank is distraught and trying to figure out what to do. As the ex-patient Mike shows up at Frank's house and tells him why the doctor got rid of everybody at the institution. He says it has something to do with the kids, the disturbed kids in the workshed, the ones your wife has taken care of. To which Frank is like, what? And rushes off to the institution. He finds the workshed and has a confrontation with Raglan. And Raglan tells him that these creatures are the children of his wife, Nola. They are children of her rage, physical manifestations of that emotion. They live upstairs in this shed and they probably got candy up there with her or with them. And Raglan actually seems kind of remorseful here to a degree and doesn't want Candy to get hurt. So he hatches a plan that Frank reluctantly goes along with, which is that Raglan will go upstairs among the brood while Frank talks to Nola downstairs. But Frank has to keep Nola happy so the brood won't attack and speak nicely and say he wants her back, etc., etc. I feel Um, like they should have switched those uh, roles, right? Yeah, you know, I wondered about that, but... Hmm. Yeah, right? Because, I mean, there's no reason for Nola to get unhappy if Raglan just walks in. Yeah, and Frank's, like, not supposed to be there. Why why would he be there? Like, that would obviously, like, trigger her. Like, here's my ex-husband who I haven't seen in, like, years. Right. How long she's been there. Exactly. Um, Yeah, that's just, yeah, it's kind of a weird approach. Yeah, yeah, bad plan by, uh, by Raglan. Yeah. Um... Nola is super creepy in this showdown discussion with Frank. And, and like you said, she the whole presence of him there and everything, she's on to him from the get-go. She doesn't think he's being truthful about his feelings of wanting her back. And she's clearly getting angry, which is a pretty tense scene to me because we're cross-cutting to Raglan upstairs, walking among the resting brood and trying to rescue Candy. And the angrier that she gets downstairs, the more aroused the brood gets and they, they start to surround Raglan. Um... He tells Candy to run as they attacked him, attack him, and she locks herself in a closet. Downstairs, Nola shows Frank this weird egg sack attached to her belly, and she rips it open with her teeth, and a weird little baby starts coming out of it. She licks the blood off the baby in as motherly of a way as you can lick blood off somebody. And Frank is just standing there in awe, trying not to puke. And he eventually determines, as he hears the chaos upstairs and Candy screaming, that his only hope is to kill Nola. He strangles her, things go quiet upstairs, and he goes up there to find all the creatures have died, and Candy is safe. However, on their drive home, the film ends with an ominous shot of weird little bumps on Candy's arm. I was confused at the time of seeing this what those bumps meant, um, but then I think I got to it. What, what did you make of the bumps? 
Yeah, I was really confused too. But then, uh, yeah, I read up a little bit, and I guess like the movie opens like that guy you see on stage, Mike or whatever. He's got the bumps on him, and uh, I guess they like represent like the physical manifestation of anger. Is that right? Yeah, and I also remember they the grandma saying they took Nola to the hospital as a girl because she kept getting weird bumps on her body. Oh, right, right. So it, okay. essentially, either way. Uh, you could look to either of those facts for support that Nola has something like this in her future. Yeah, um, right. Yeah. Almost like it's hereditary or something. Right. So I don't know if Dr. Ragland seeks out the people who have this ability or if his therapy specifically creates that ability or if it's kind of a, a blending of the two. Right, right. Like the so, person has uh, to have that trait and then he has to like bring it to its fruition through his therapy yeah. sessions. Uh, does having that trait mean you're going to have these baby broods? I don't know that it necessarily does. I think that the, the emotions can manifest themselves in different ways. Yeah. Okay. But for Nola, that's just how it did it. Yeah. Um, did you notice that the title of the film, The Brood, Brood has a few definitions. It could be it does, a, does it? a family of young animals or the act of hatching a young animal from an egg. Mm-hmm. But it can also mean to think deeply about something that makes one unhappy. Uh, to brood on something? Yeah, so I think that's kind of cool. It's a, it's like a, yeah. a, the duality there in the title. I didn't didn't really catch that until I was thinking more about the movie. Yeah, that is really cool. I, yeah, wow. Smart. Yeah. Uh, what did you think of this thing? Uh, it, it was original, man. Like, uh, that, that storyline, I, I, I can't, I, like, it's just sounds insane. Uh, <laughs> but, but like the, the tone and the atmosphere of the movie was like so well done and, and serious and, uh, kind of realistic too. Like, I feel like it was like really well paced and, uh, nothing felt like overdone and like the acting by, um, all the, the, the main cast, like Frank, uh, his wife, Nola and the doctor, I thought were really well acted and so like they they took this very like kind of silly ridiculous concept and for the most part i I thought like made it uh work which which i was surprised about um what what did you think i totally agree man and i i think the acting is a a big part of that reason it's so believable um i just echo what you said frank was he was a good like grounding for the story he he played it all pretty naturally he never was like too high or too low, but he was very believable um, mm-hmm. and kind of made a wacky story have some relatability and an emotional through line. Yeah. Um, and then Samantha Egger, who played Nola, I thought she was amazing in that final confrontation with Frank. Like, yeah. Her wild eyes she was really haunting. It was. Yeah. Yeah. She was like so unpredictable. I feel like uh, scene to scene, like, uh, just how like uh, yeah how she would like kind of ride this like emotional roller coaster is pretty amazing. Yeah, yeah, and I think uh, uh, Oliver Reed, as I mentioned, well cast in this as the off-putting weirdo Doctor Raglan. Um, but yeah, like you said, this is wild. But I really like the story. I mean, it it's got strange elements. And at first, when I saw that little creature kill Grandma, I was like, oh, what's happening in this movie? Yeah. Um, because as you said, the creatures, they're, they're, the act of them killing people is maybe a little silly, but the mystery element of the movie like kept trucking along. It had a lot of good beats and moments of genuine suspense. Um, 
And then, like we discussed, the murders start to become creepy after a while once you see the the gravity of what they do. Yeah, yeah, right. And um, uh, I, the gore, the gore too, I thought kind of like starts to build an ad uh, as well. Like, did you like the the baby scene where I feel like that was like the height of the the gore? Yeah, this. that was pretty intense, and those effects look good when yeah, she like br- eats the or gnaws open the egg sac and the the baby yeah. comes out. Like that was gross. <laughs> that was really gross. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's that's really cool to see. Um, but like, uh, uh, like I mean, as silly it is, uh, like when he starts to dive into it, like there's so many plot holes though too, right? Like, how was it that she was like putting out these kids? They were buying snowsuits and putting these kids up in like this attic, and then the the, the kids are like breaking out of there and going out and killing people. Is that kind of what we're meant to believe here? Yeah, yeah. What? Where's <laughs> what's wrong buying, with that? Who's um, buying all these snowsuits? Yeah, right. I assume Raglan's going to the store and getting a bunch of snowsuits for him. <laughs> like, oh, God, you gave birth to three this week? Yeah. <laughs> Spending a fortune on snowsuits. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Should have raised some flags. Yeah, but like, I mean, so, the cashier at Walmart's giving him suspicious glances. <laughs> yeah. How many kids do you have? And they're all the same age? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then and then so he's just like got them locked up in there and uh and how how is she giving birth to them like uh is it like a, a quick pregnancy or like how, how do you think that works? I mean, a brood typically means uh like family of young animals that hatch at the same time. So oh. I think it's a pretty quick reproduction cycle, I would guess. Okay, okay. Got I it. mean, clearly there's only one kid in that sack, but I'm guessing yeah. she's cranking them out. Okay. Considering you, they don't live forever, and there was a lot of them. Yeah. Could you tell how long she'd been in that institution for? I didn't know. I would guess maybe just like a year at tops. Hmm. Okay. Because it just seemed kind of fresh. Yeah. Yeah. For yeah, the family. Yeah, it seemed kind of fresh uh, to me too, right? Yeah. Um, but yeah, and so I would guess there's some sort of psychic connection with the mom, with Nola, that they know how to find these people. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I could totally see Raglan like keeping them upstairs. Like this is essentially kind of like a Frankenstein type type story, right? Like mm-hmm. these are his creations or like he's made this happen and he's the mad scientist who wants to study it all and see how it works. And it's the most important thing to him. Well, that's the one thing I, I couldn't understand, like his role in all of this. Like, uh, you think he's the reason she was having those or she was having those, like, uh, she, she was giving birth to these creatures and that's why she's there. Like, uh, was it pretty clear that it was a result of the work that he was doing? I think, or- yeah, I think maybe she inherently had the capabilities and his work specifically, like, brought those capabilities to their full potential. That's mm-hmm. my take on it. Okay. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. Oh, and that's why, like, Kyoto would say, like, uh, I think his line was always, like, take this through from beginning to end, don't stop in the middle. Like, he was all about, like, seeing an emotion through, right? Right, right. He wanted to get them to, like, feel these emotions as deeply as possible, like, to see what would happen. Hmm, okay. Or because he knew something would happen. Yeah, interesting. And he, like, you know, thought she was the key to psychoplasmics, like, meaning that one specific person can be a better... Um, subject than another. Yeah. So would you say like Raglan is a villain in this one? Yeah. I, 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 I say he's like a villain. Um, I'm tempted to compare him to like Dr. Frankenstein, but he's not as much of a main character, not as much of a sympathetic character, but by the end, he's not straight up villain. You know, he, he does yeah. save candy. 
Yeah. Um, but yeah, yeah. I, I equate him to a mad scientist type. Okay. Okay. Cool. Yeah. Um, I, it seems like it was shot and produced really well. Um, right. I thought the, the music was... Oh, oh go ahead. Oh, I was going to say the music score was, was like incredible as well. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Howard Shore there. And yeah. then um, I thought the colors were really striking too. It was a lot of earth tones with kind of like red scattered throughout, like really popping against kind of the muted earth tone type stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it, it, that was cool to me. It, it was kind of like a, I don't know, symbolic of the movie itself and just how it had such like weird elements that really pop, but it was just grounded in, in like a solid story and, and solid mm-hmm. characters here. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. And I love, there's a lot of themes at play here. I feel like the core theme is like what our minds and emotions can physically manifest both in our own bodies and in the physical world. Um, and I think that's intriguing. Like, do you ever think about that? Like, I mean, back to that discussion on ulcers, like what you do to yourself by being stressed out. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. The connection between mental and physical health and yeah, like, uh, the, the, like the toll it takes on your body. Um, yeah, I, th- I thought that was like a, a great point this movie was making, like showing the, uh, uh, extreme effects of like, uh, or exaggerated effects of like what a mental illness can do. Right. And maybe the part of the reason this film has grown in its fandom over the years is just society's more like increased awareness of that fact, how stress can impact your body and stuff. That's yeah, that's a really good point. I don't know if I ever told you about this, but there was a period in my life where I hated my job Mm -hmm. and I was having like ear pain and randomly I would like have trouble swallowing every once in a while and I would have bouts of vertigo. Oh, wow. And then I quit that job and it all went away. Yeah. Immediately. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It's crazy. It it was wild. Yeah. 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 It's crazy how much uh, stress does to to the body. It's kind of crazy. Indeed. Uh, man. Yeah, yeah. I think this movie was ahead of itself and kind of like trying to tackle that or, or show that in a way, uh, yeah. which, which is pretty cool. But do you? I, I saw one criticism uh, saying that like uh, it's um, uh, you know it kind of plays a, it puts a poor light on like uh, like does it focus too much on a woman and her ability inability to um, uh, control the anger. And then, like, yeah, I saw some people critiquing it in, in that light. But then others were like, well, no, because it's, like, the mad scientist guy who's, like, making it happen or something. So I, I did, did any of that sh- jump out to you? Yeah, I didn't really think about that while watching the movie, but I did see those criticisms. I mean, there's – she happened to be the main – well, kind of the antagonist of the movie, I guess. But you've also got Mike and that other guy, like – there are other male victims of this too. It's just that their symptoms don't, you know, I guess they're not as much villainized because their symptoms don't involve any violence onto somebody else. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. Um, but I will read a quote from a film critic named Carrie Rickey, uh, who kind of, she kind of countered the misogyny type arguments some people were making against the film. And she says, for me, Cronenberg's gynophobia is a non-issue. It's blaming the victim. After all, aren't we talking about movies where male scientists use women as guinea pigs and then are shocked when the test subjects become monstrous, voracious, etc.? 
Let me invoke the Jessica Rabbit defense. The women are not bad. They're just drawn that way. It's the male scientists who have inadvertently transformed them into men's worst nightmares. Mm, interesting. So, like, yeah, um, it does maybe cast women in a poor light and not being able to control their emotions. But really, the true villain is uh, Raglan, Raglan, without whom yeah. none of this would be happening. Got it. Got it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that, that's, that's a good point. I, I feel like the film could have done a bit more to make Raglan out into a villain because uh, we do get limited time with him, and he's kind of just like really straight faced the whole time. And at the end, like he does, kind of redeem himself by trying to save Candy. But uh, it would have been cool to kind of take take that a step further. The other thing, though, thinking about um, the inspiration for this film um, being his own divorce, like wh- what's the story he's telling here? Is uh, that that like I mean this can't look good for his ex-wife, right? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> yeah, I can't imagine she's thrilled about she's, this. She's uh, she's like you motherfucker. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> you can bet a little like mutant creature knocked on his door the next day after she saw it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's got the boot coming after him. <laughs> um, actually, uh, Meg Navarro wrote an article that expanded on that theme a little bit uh, on bloodydisgusting.com about divorce and how it kind of echoes through the generations um, and we're kind of left at the end of the movie seeing like okay a similar fate awaits candy mm-hmm. um, and I didn't really think about it in terms of the layers but the grandparents are both kind of it's hinted at that they're both drunks now right like mm. they got divorced now Nola and Frank's relationship is on the rocks and the daughter we see at the end of the movie is going to follow in the footsteps of mom. Uh, take that however you want that to mean. But I think it could be seen as a study of like the echo effects on a family of yeah, not just divorce, but any, any negative uh, event or even the repression of negative events. Like, you know, she's being beaten and, and nobody uh, talks about it openly and, the grandpa acts like it's just not happening. So right, I think there's commentary right. on repression, like family trauma and repressing that, divorce and and the echo effect across generations. Um Yeah. Yeah. I feel like we've talked about this before now. I specifically like bad things echoing through the generations. Uh, I wonder if it was like a relic or something. Yeah, maybe. Maybe. Yeah. I know there's some stuff in my family that's just like yeah, it's just even yeah. now, like grandkids and possibly even great grandkids are like reaping the uh, the rewards of the punishments of the actions of grandparents and great grandparents. It's just like wild, right. like how yeah. the the things that you do, yeah, survive like generations. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know yeah, that that part is so cool. That, that's really interesting because yeah, I, I I didn't tie that to the grandparents, but that, that's a really good point because that's uh, that's like what he says. Like I'm sad to see. What's happening to you guys is similar to like what happened to us or something, right? So uh, yeah, the, the kind of repetition that's so interesting. Exactly, and not to uh, demonize divorce or or getting divorced, and that's sometimes clearly the best thing for everybody. But I think it's just more about uh, family trauma, whatever shape that trauma may take, and and right. how it affects people. Right. Right. Yep. Yeah, yeah. And, it, and that that's I think goes back to Candy's acting where. Uh, I feel like she was uh, kind of falling into that uh, thing of like keeping these emotions inside, letting the anger build up uh, through the years. And like she's going through this pretty traumatic experience, but she's not like talking about it. And that end is kind of foreshadowing what she's what's going to happen to her later in life, potentially. 
Yeah, you're right. You really make me regret criticizing a <laughs> five-year-old <laughs> five-year-old performance in 1979. <laughs> I, yeah, some days you got to do what makes you feel good. You know? I've eaten my <laughs> words. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, yeah, I, 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 that's how I interpreted it. But uh, yeah, I think was, that's right. I think that's a good interpretation. All right. Um. Anything else, man, on this before we get to the rating? Uh, no, no. I think that's all, all I had. Well, hey, zero. Oh, so, oh, go psychoplasmics ahead. isn't uh, a real thing, is it? I, I don't think it is. No. Okay. I tried right, to like briefly it. figure out if that was real because it doesn't like spell check it. Like it doesn't correct it yeah. if I type it out. But uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. It's a cool word, but yeah, I'm not sure if that's a word. It's a real cool really. word. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Okay, well, zero to five monstrous kids who slip unsuspectingly into a preschool. What do you give this movie? Uh, who slip unsuspectingly? Oh, okay, okay, yeah, yeah, unexpectedly into a preschool. Uh, yeah, I'd give this a, a four out of five uh, monstrous kids who unexpectedly uh, slip into a, a preschool. Uh, just because, yeah, g- uh, really well done, uh, great acting, great production, uh, good pacing, and uh, an interesting uh a commentary on on society and and that uh, mental illness and that kind of stuff. What about yeah. you? I give it a four point five out of five. Cool. Monstrous kids slipping into a preschool. I nice. think uh, everything you just said, man. I think it's just a really good story with with good characters and it has heart. Um, mm-hmm. And then yeah, it's also just wild and strange and has some really deep themes that that really provoke some thought. Yeah. Is this your favorite Cronenberg film then so far? Uh, you know what? I think it might be. I, I really like The Fly, but I think I gave The Fly a four. So, yeah. Oh, man, A History of Violence is so good, too. But, yeah, yeah. I, I like, of the few I've rated, this is this is up there. Rabbit is the only one I straight up didn't really enjoy that much. Ah, okay. Um, okay. Yeah. Yeah. I was, I was surprised how much I liked this one. It was, it was, it was really fun and good I, one. I was too. Like there was a moment where I kind of regretted choosing this. I was like, eh, it's not really like a Cronenberg that gets talked about all that much. This is maybe I shouldn't have chosen this movie, but I'm I'm really glad we watched it. Yeah, yeah, it was a good watch. Yeah, I was pleasantly surprised. <laughs> Me too. Okay. All right, everybody. Well, that has been our discussion on The Brood from 1979. If you enjoyed it, don't hesitate to give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. That helps other people find our show, and we really appreciate it. If you want to connect with us, you can go to horrormovieclub.com and find the social links drop down. That will show you links to our Facebook and Twitter pages where we post uh, what movie we're going to be covering a week ahead of time so that you can watch in preparation. There's also a link on that social drop downs, uh, social links drop down to our Discord server. You can come on there and chat with us and many other horror fans and podcast fans who are on there every day talking about horror. Um, it's a great place to come chat with some like-minded people. Uh, if you want some merch, you can go to Amy May Popart on Etsy.com. Or you can just go to Etsy.com and search Horror Movie Club Coasters and you'll find a little coaster set with our logo on there. Um, Amy does our logo art, by the way. and She's got great horror art out there on Etsy.com. And let's see. You can reach out to us, podcast at horrormovieclub.com. Email that address. And until next time, if you're ever searching a house for someone who just committed a murder, 
I'd search the house with the knowledge that murderers come in all sizes. And frankly, <laughs> it's height discrimination for you to do otherwise. It really is. <laughs> I mean, Osmond and I are short. Do you think we can't kill people? I know. We'll show you guys. <laughs> we kill people all the time. Yeah. <laughs> Knock over all their kitchen appliances and kill them. That's always the best way to start. <laughs> you start with the kitchen appliances. <laughs> we'll, we'll do it while the kids are watching. <laughs> yeah. We don't care. <laughs> and we're short as hell. Yeah. We got snowsuits. <laughs> <laughs> well, we should get matching ones for our next murder. Oh, totally. Oh. Yeah. <laughs>